to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on earth. I can remember somebody asked me on Wednesday what I was going to be preaching on, and at that time I told him I was going to be preaching on Jude about contending for the faith. Well, the Lord had other plans. He made it clear, but I'd been meditating on this scripture for a long time, for months actually. When I finally committed to memory that first chapter of Ephesians. And I can remember thinking about those words with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. What does that really mean? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning because it says in that phrase before it, with a culmination of God's, and that's the title of our sermon, the culmination of God's purpose. Another way you could say it, the climax of God's purpose in Christ Jesus. And that is uh, from, a, from a series we did several years ago, back in 2011-2012, about the essential truths of our faith. And I felt that this probably fit in with that aspect of it, because it is an essential truth of our faith when we began to explore the wisdom of God's Word and its meaning to us and its application to our lives in this day and age. You know, as you, and if you're like me, I, I cannot help myself, I have to listen to the news daily. And uh, when you do that, you can become discouraged. Matter of fact, you can become angry sometimes. Because you see the exemplification of that verse of scripture in Isaiah 5, which it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute light for darkness and darkness for light, who substitute Sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. Woe to those who do that. You see it every single day in the news. That somebody is calling what is really evil in the sight of God, a holy and righteous God, and they're calling it good. When people take a particular lifestyle and say, this is not only acceptable, it's preferential. And when you look at the the situation in our day and age, in which there are rumors of wars and wars, what's going on, for instance, in the Middle East between Palestine on Gaza and the Israelis is an example of that. What's happening in the Ukraine is an example of that. And on and on it goes. That's just a couple of examples. There are things that are happening in the world we don't even hear about on a daily basis. You'd have to get involved with the news on a very deep and probing basis in order to find out what those are. But the fact is, is if you looked at the situation in which we find ourselves, you become very discouraged because there's much turmoil going on in the world. But this verse of scripture gives us hope in that God is assuring us in this passage of scripture that there is hope because in the fullness of time, According to his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ, in the fullness of time, he's revealed to us the mystery. And he has also assured us that there will be an administration, a plan, a dispensation, if you will, in which we will have a view. uh, And that is essentially the summing up of all things in Christ. 
things both in the heavens and things on earth. What an awesome promise he's making here to us. And if you looked at this passage of Scripture, especially in verse 10, which with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth, you really have the central passage or central verse of Scripture that is explaining the purpose of God's Word to the Ephesians through the Apostle Paul. He's really saying that. If you looked at the old King James, it says this, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him which is a great passage of Scripture in its own right. Matter of fact, I think it's probably more effective and a better translation in a way than the New American Standard, which I read from all the time. But the purpose here is to understand that God's giving us a glimpse into his divine plan, his dispensation. And don't, we'll talk about that word in a few minutes, but let's put it aside right now. But it's a plan. It's administration, as they call it in the New American Standard that indicates what he intends to do with respect to human history as it relates to his son, Jesus Christ. And we'll look at some other scriptures that magnify this in his word. Let's talk about, uh, in the next slide, the mystery of his will. And you'll see that it begins there in a partial of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. In all wisdom and insight, some translations have that as part of verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which he, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Other translations, such as the New American Standard, put that and attach it to verse 9. He made known to us, in all wisdom and insight he made known to us. As I look at it, and, and there's a variety of translations, I looked at probably about 10 to 15 different translations to see how they handled this verse of Scripture in that phrase, in all wisdom and insight. And basically, about two-thirds of them attach it to verse 7 and about a third to verse 9. The New American Standard, obviously, is the latter. But the fact is, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. It's God's wisdom and insight that reveals his plan in the fullness of time. It's God's wisdom and insight that has informed us that we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ, and thus our trespasses have been forgiven, and by, that's in accordance by God's grace, the riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He's done all things in wisdom and insight. And he's revealed the mystery of his will accordingly. But the fact is, it's not a great amount of difference. The simple fact of the matter is, it's God who's doing it. It's God's wisdom. It's God's insight, not man's. So what is a mystery? He's revealed to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention in Christ Jesus. The New American Collegiate Dictionary defines mystery as a religious truth that man can know by revelation alone and cannot fully understand. It is also something not understood or beyond understanding. An enigma, for instance. It could be a piece of fiction dealing with the solution of mysterious crime. 
It could be a profound and explicable or secretive quality of character. The fact is, is that as we define mystery, and in the Greek, it's mysterion, is the way M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, as it's transliterated into English. The Illustrated Bible Dictionary, I think, said something profound. It says, mystery, as it defines it, is eternal in its scope. It's eternal in scope, insofar as it relates to the divine plan of salvation. We talked about the mystery of our salvation in Christ. It's historical in its announcement because it happened at a particular point in time when the apostles came and began to preach and when Jesus announced the mystery of the kingdom of God. So therefore, it is spiritual in its perception. And lastly, it deals with latter-day things. It deals with eschatological outcomes in its, in its entirety because it talks about the mystery of the plan of salvation, the plan that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. This next slide has a picture of a man who I'm going to quote a couple of times this morning. His name is David Martin Lloyd Jones. He's probably the most famous preacher who ever lived who could preach in the Welsh tongue, but he also was a fantastic preacher in English as well. You only need to read a few of his of his works, of his sermons especially those that he preached to his congregation at Westminster Chapel on Sunday evenings. He was a great expositor of the gospel, a great expositor. He died in 1982, born in 1899. So he had a fruitful life in every sense of the word, but he, had, he started off as a medical doctor to the royal family and then became a preacher of the gospel. He always has this serious look on his face. I've never seen a picture of him smiling. That doesn't mean he was a dour personality. He was a very serious man. And if you read his works, you'll understand why. I was introduced to them about 1978-79 by a, a fellow by the name of Vic Adrian, who was, I think, the uh, dean at the Canadian Bible College. And he said, when we were teaching a class on the Sermon on the Mount, and he suggested Martin Lord Jones' book on the Sermon on the Mount. I read that and became a fan thereafter because I think he's a very wise and a very uh, incredibly a gifted man in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says something in defining this word mystery. He says, particularly the word mystery in the New Testament does not mean something that is incomprehensible to the human mind but is rather something that is undiscoverable undiscoverable to the unaided human mind. Not something incomprehensible, but something that is not even discoverable to the unaided human mind. So what does man need in order to understand the mysteries of God? And this next verse of Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 20-21 and 25, and by the way, I'm just cherry-picking some verses here, I would suggest that you read, beginning in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and go through all of chapter 2, because it talks about this very issue, about natural man not being able to understand the things of God. It cannot discern spiritual truths. It says here, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
And then in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. If there was ever such a thing as the foolishness of God, Paul's really using a lot of hyperbole in this case, because there's no such thing as foolishness of God. But he said, if that were true, it would be, if God was in his most foolish thoughts, he would be far wiser than man in his wisest thoughts. If God was weak, and he's not, he's almighty. But if he were weak, he would be far stronger than the strongest man. In every sense of the word, both morally, physically, in every way, in every aspect of it, God's ways are far above our ways. So to the perishing, the cross is foolishness, but to those of us who are saved, it is the power of God. And because of God's wisdom, the world cannot come to understand or comprehend the wisdom of God. It takes something different. It takes something, indeed, divine. And that is the regenerating work of God's Holy Spirit, which enables us to begin to comprehend spiritual things. Let's look at the wisdom revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. It says in 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So if we're going to understand the mysteries of God, we have to understand it from a spiritual perspective. We cannot do it with an unaided human mind. We must have a regenerated human mind in order to understand spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. So how is this word used in the scripture? How is the word mystery used? You'll find it in the New Testament, even in the Gospels. Christ made mention, he says there in Matthew 13, 10 and 12, he said, to you has been granted, he was speaking to his disciples, his followers, his believers, to you has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. He was talking about the crowds in general, because the disciples asked, why are you speaking in parables? Why are you telling us these stories about earthly things with heavenly meetings, because we're having a hard time understanding them, and Christ even began to explain it to his own disciples until they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had very difficult times sometimes understanding what he was saying, but he was speaking these truths and parables, and he talked about the mystery of the kingdom of God. So we find it's used there in Matthew also, and in its parallel verse in Mark, I think it's chapter 3. It is a mystery hidden but now revealed. As the scripture says in Colossians 1.26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. What an awesome verse of scripture when you consider it. But it was a mystery hidden to the prophets. They could not understand this coming kingdom of God, and they couldn't comprehend the fullness of its significance and the meaning of all these things about the advent of Christ when he came as fully man, as a babe in the manger. So these are things not revealed, and they couldn't understand about the resurrected body. 
how, and, and the things that the Apostle Paul later revealed to us in the letters that he wrote to the various churches. So what was once hidden has now been made known, and that is what this thing is about the hidden mystery of the kingdom of God. According to his kind intention in Christ. You know, this is another verse of scripture, I think, which bears thinking on, because further in this passage of uh, the letter to the church at uh, uh, Ephesus, Paul wrote these words. He said, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How can a God who loves us that much not begin to reveal the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of his word, the mystery of the fullness of time? God loves us that much in his say awesome verse of scripture to compel and to understand. But let us consider the things that God has done for us in Christ. As Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, he reminded them that they had been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He reminded them that in Christ they had been chosen before the foundation of the world. He reminded them that Christ had adopted them as sons through Christ to himself. He reminded them that God had redeemed us through the blood of Christ and forgiven us our trespasses. He reminds us that God has given us an inheritance. And then he reminds us that in Christ he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the down payment for that inheritance. What awesome things God has done for us. And as we understand this, he has revealed us, to be revealed to us, the mystery of his will in accordance, in accordance with the kind intention of his purpose in Christ. What's God's ultimate plan then? And what I've done here, actually in verse 10, I, as you see, I've kind of emphasized, I've bolded those, those words that relate to the particular aspect of it. And here we're talking about this phrase, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. What does the Apostle Paul mean by this? The word administration, as it's used here in the New American Standard, as it's used in the Greek New Testament, is a Greek word called oikonomia, O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-A, which would be translated, transliterated into English, oikonomia. And it means essentially administration. Stewardship. But it has a significance of meaning that goes even beyond that. It means a plan or an economy. Uh, it can mean that a dispensation. And that's a word that has been unfortunately abused in the history of the word. I, I can remember, by the way, the very first time I heard that. And I, it was probably when I was a teenager. And I heard this explanation of the dispensation of the churches. And they were using as an example the seven churches in the first three chapters there of Revelation, as the different dispensations. And as it was, this particular preacher believed that we were in the dispensation of the church at Ephesus. We had left our first love, 
And we had been admonished to that we were neither hot nor cold, but we were lukewarm, and we needed to return to a fervent love for God. There were things he could commemorate us for, but the fact is, but that was the interpretation that this particular preacher had. And I I know there's even a school of theology that is dispensational in all of its interpretation of the word. But the fact is, is that we can abuse that. Dispensation means uh, that it depends on the standpoint of what you're doing. And here again, uh, I want to go to the next particular slide as it all, as it's defined by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I think he makes a great point when he says this. He says, it all depends upon whether you regard it from the standpoint of a person who is in authority or from the standpoint of a person who is under authority. If you regard, and there's a typo there, if you regard the word from the former standpoint, that is a person who's in authority, its meaning is a plan, a scheme, an economy. In other words, a dispensation. If you do the latter, if you regard it as a person who is under authority, it means an office, a stewardship, or an administration. Now, look at the next slide, as we will, because it talks about a koinomia interpreted as administration. And what I've done, I've used a couple of examples of the New American Standard Translation and the English Standard Version, which I think are two solid, good translations of the Scripture. There are those who disagree with that. There are those who say only the authorized version, the King James Version in 1611, is really, truly the Word of God. I cannot, I cannot buy that at all. I think God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, has protected his word and has given us good translations of the original Greek. And those are the scriptures that were divinely inspired and ever since the word without error, without anything that, were, that was flawed. But in here, we find that in Ephesians 3.9, just a few more paragraphs after Paul wrote this particular passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about an administration of the mystery which for the ages had been hidden in God who created all things. He's talking about that oikonomia, the administration, and he talks about that. That's the way it's translated in the New American Standard, but in the English Standard Version it's translated as a plan. It's a plan for the mystery hidden in the ages to which God has created all things. So that would be really from the perspective of one who's in authority. Because think of it, it's called about the administration of the mystery. Who gave the administration of the mystery? They gave it to Paul. And Paul has, there's ways you can look at this, it's not important, but the fact is that it's given by God. It's God who's given this stewardship or this administration or this plan to his his chosen apostles. In Timothy 1.4, there again is a difference. In the New American Standard, it's administration. In the uh, English Standard Version, it is called uh, the stewardship. And in the next slide we have, in Ephesians 3.2, we talk about the stewardship of God's grace which has been given to me for you. And this is Paul writing about what God has given him, a stewardship. In other words, he's responsible for managing the gospel of grace to not only Ephesians, but to every Gentile Christian. 
And as a consequence, that's that's someone who's under the authority. He's under the authority of God because God's charged him to manage, managing that to the stewardship of that particular ministry. And again, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, 11, you have examples of that same thing, talking about the stewardship entrusted to me. So, what does he mean then by the term, the fullness of the times? In verse 4 of Galatians 4, he talks here about when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And in Romans 11.25, he talks about, to those, as he addresses them, I do not want, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. About the fullness of the time and the fullness of the Gentiles, what does he mean by this? And in the fullness of the time, I think it relates to his advent. When you look at when God chose the proper time to bring Christ upon the earth, when he chose the proper time for Christ to become a man, a babe in a manger. It was during the time of one of the more peaceful times in those modern or those and those particular New Testament times, uh, as we call it, the Pax Romana. It was a time of peace. It was extraordinary in that stage. And also it was a time in which most of that known world was united in a common language the language of Greek, especially in its commercial form. It was also a time in which a road system had been created by the great Roman Empire, which made it fairly easy for people, and this was not the days of mass transportation, or the kind of transportation we enjoy in our day and age, but it was a time when man could get about rather easily in the Roman Empire, and so the gospel could spread. It was a time, the fullness of time, that God chose to bring his son upon the earth. It will be the fullness of time, by the way, when God chooses the moment when he shall come again and claim us for his own, and we shall be with him forever. It will be the fullness of time when God brings Christ back to earth to reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords, in which we will rule with him, as the Bible promises for a thousand years. I think that will be a time when God's going to demonstrate to us what it would have been like if we had been obedient and faithful to him from the very beginning and how righteous a rule man could enjoy by a, through a righteous God. But we chose a sinful way instead. But the fullness of the time is when God come, came and when he will come again. And it also relates to the fullness of the time as it relates to the Gentiles. He, Paul mentions the fullness of the, of the Gentiles has come in. And God knows when that will be, and he's the only one who knows it. So that's the thing we need to understand, that God will bring about this in his own time. And when it does, it will be fully complete and at the right and proper moment to the very second of time in history. There's another quote I want to share with you 
from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, uh, the study Bible version of that, about the days of fulfillment. It says, the goal of history is based on God's divine purpose concerning the crucified Redeemer, Jesus the Messiah, for whom, through whom, and in whom are all things. The goal is established is to establish a new world order. Have you heard that term before? A new world order? Especially was a time when George H.W. Bush was the President of the United States, the Soviet Union had fallen, and we were talking about the establishment of a new world order. But here they're talking about a new world order of which Jesus Christ is the acknowledged head. He now rules and reigns from God's right hand. One day he will establish his kingdom and bring in the new heavens and the new earth, fulfilling and finalizing God's redemptive purpose. This is what is involved in bringing together things in heaven and things on earth in him. All things. That's why a biblical worldview of history is so important because remember what I said to you many times. That when we look at, at history from a biblical worldview, we're talking about history being linear. History has a beginning when God created man and history began. And history has an end when Christ shall come and we shall join him, when his kingdom shall be truly established in every sense of the word, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth by the creative process of God. History has a beginning. History has an end. And that's what we're talking about in the fullness of times in accordance with his kind intention which he purposed in Christ. Now let's look at that culmination of God's word as it relates to the summing up of all things in Christ. When God created the earth, what did he say? It is good. It was perfect in every sense of the word. God's creation was perfect. And therefore, man marred and fouled that creation when man sinned. And as a consequence, God needs to restore all of this. He needs to take his redemptive work through Christ Jesus and restore and make again and bring together all things to reunite them, if you will, in Christ so that it might be perfect once again. And it will be. We're going to stand before him holy and blameless. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself. What more could we ask? What privileges we could have? These things God's doing for us. So what once was perfect until Adam's sin will be made perfect again when Christ shall come and all things are brought together in him. Let's look at one other passage of Scripture which magnifies this greatly. And that's found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Think about the significance of that. In him all things hold together. Would not this world spin completely out of control? 
Would not it destroy itself utterly if it were not Christ Jesus who was holding all things together? And that is the why, that's why he has his saints upon this earth as salt and light for a purpose. That we might have an influence in our world today, not being of the world, but testifying of Christ in the world. So that all things in him are held together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in all things, or in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth are things in heaven, all will be summed up in him, both in heaven and on earth. All will be right, and he will have a preeminent place in every aspect of the word. So how should this impact us? As a matter of fact, you know, I'm the worldview guy. So I keep asking that question. How should this affect your worldview? If you have a biblical worldview, how should it impact it? It should give us knowing that God's given wisdom and insight a great, a great deal of reassurance and encouragement to know it's God who's in control of human history. And that's another aspect. He's the ultimate control of human history. He's the ultimate author. He knows when the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. He will know when the fullness of the time is here, when Christ shall come again. And he shall establish a new world order under Jesus Christ, his Son. It's God who determines that fullness of time. Our expectations, our hope, should be, enough, should be in nothing but Christ alone. I, I, I so appreciate that song that Ron sung this morning in Let. It is not only beautiful poetry. It is divine truth. It absolutely is powerful truth because it brings testimony of God's grace and power and what he's done and why it is in Christ alone we should have our hope and nothing else. If we live with this perspective, we will not be discouraged or defeated. So if you have a worldview, understanding God is in control of history, that it has a beginning and an end, that he has revealed to us the, the full, in the fullness of time his purpose in Christ Jesus according to his kind intention, that he has given us a view, he's given us a view of his plan, an administration that is suitable to the fullness of his times, and that is the fullness of times, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. You know, this is, this is such profound truth. It's just staggering. Uh, and, and matter of fact, why I kind of really shied away from wanting to preach this sermon was because I thought, how can I begin to explain in just a small degree what it is that this really means to us and how it should impact our lives as believers, as Christians. Uh, and I apologize because I can tell you, I know I'm inadequate to explain this. Matter of fact, but if I were a theologian, I'd probably be inadequate, inadequate to explain it. Because God is an awesome God. He is an awesome God. And what he's done for us in Christ Jesus and why, how he's gifted us 
and given to us these things that the Apostle Paul so beautifully described throughout the letter to the church at Ephesus is just something that blows your mind. It's incredible what God has done. I encourage you to consider how this can impact your worldview and how it can impact the way you live your life in Christ and the way you bear witness to the world of what he's done. It is something that we need to consider, and more important than that, we need to do for his glory and honor. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for all that you have done for us. Truly, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Lord God, you have revealed the mystery of your will to us. According to your kind intention which you purposed in him, you have brought about the promise that there will be an administration, there will be a plan in accordance with the fullness of times in which Christ will be revealed in all of his glory and power to the praise of the glory of your grace. Father, we thank you for that. We bless the name of Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, our Savior, our Lord, our Redeemer, and our friend. And Father, we ask that you instill in us a greater awareness of all that you have done, that we might constantly meditate upon it, giving thanks and blessing the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. For we pray in that name. Amen.